The following episode contains major plot points of movies. A spoiler warning is advised. This episode also contains topics that may be disturbing for some viewers, so viewer discretion is also advised. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Abbey Normal Podcast. I'm your host, Colin Bourne. And I'm Aaliyah. How's it going, everyone, on this quiet Monday night evening? Mon- oh yeah, that's right. I, I think I said night and evening as the same thing, but yes, this so, Monday night. So we're recording this on June 27th, and it will be, I mean, if you're hearing this by now, it's posted on July 3rd, which, ironically, we're recording this the week that Volume 2 of Stranger Things comes out this mm-hmm. week, but when we post it, it'll be two days after the release, and we still don't know what's going to happen yet. So I know we can't really talk about it. Eleven's going <laughs> to die. No, no, we don't know that for sure. I think she is. Well, you've never watched the trailer. Let her die. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But it is fun to speculate, because my mom just started getting into Stranger Things recently, and she's already on season three. Yeah. Which I'm very impressed. I wish <laughs> my mom would, too, but I don't think she's really into that kind of stuff, but yeah. Probably not. My mom grew up on all that 80s stuff. Well, I mean, my mom did, too, and everything, but it's just, I don't know if my mom really does like Stranger Things or not. I never ask her about it. Well, I gotta keep in mind with this. Your mom was born in 1959, which throughout the 80s, that would have made her from like 22 to like what, 30? Well, here's the thing. What? Ugh, I got hair in my mouth. Um, Yeah, so she would be 22 all the way to 31. Yeah, so when your mom was in her 20s, my mom was in her teens. Yeah. So my mom fits... Well, 22 to 30, she would be in the 80s. But then in 1990, she would have been 31. So let's just say hypothetically, if our parents were the ages that they were in the Stranger Things, like, saga and time frame... Like as teenagers? Well, my mom would have been a teenager. Your mom would have been an adult. Yeah, she would have been by then, yeah. Yeah, so there's that. My mom grew up on a lot of that stuff. She grew up watching movies like E.T., Jurassic Park. Well, Jurassic Park came out in 93, so I don't know why I said Jurassic Park. I don't know why either. I I kept telling her that season two was giving me a lot of Jurassic Park vibes. She was telling me, a mom would always tell me in the 80s that her and dad would always go to the movies, and they've seen some of the biggest movies that we talk about today in Mm -hmm. the theater. Like, they watched Back to the Future three times Yep. when it first came out. And she, I was like, why did you go back each time? She's like, why not? That movie was amazing. And especially right. at a time, everyone went to go see that movie again. Yeah, my mom was really into, like, the fantasy stuff. Uh, maybe not so much horror, but she does, like, she notices the references in the Stranger Things. So I'm glad that she, like, enjoys it. And I feel like by the time part like volume two comes out this friday she'll probably have already catched up by season four i would be laughing if your mom would, would laugh when she watched the scene where the two are singing never any story and i'm wait i haven't told her that part yet yeah. i'm waiting for that part because she used to love never ending story well just imagine that part coming in she'll probably freak the hell out she will be so pumped yeah so- <laughs> my mom loves never ending story so honey so we're not here for Stranger Things. Let's tell them well, what we're really here for. I know we're really here to talk about Giallo films, but I wanted we did say before we got on the podcast that we were going to speculate a little bit. What do you think is going to happen in Volume 2 of Stranger Things? Eleven's going to die. 
That's what you're just... You're just being a troll at this point. Eleven's going to die. Steve's going to die. They're all going to die. So here's my hypothesis, okay? I have heard... Like, I've seen the trailer for Volume 2, the latest one that came out last week, and I'm intrigued. I... I can already tell that it's got some heavy, heavy vibes to it. Obviously, when you watch the clips of the Hawkins gang preparing to go after Vecna, everything's, like, pretty heavy. And the Duffer brothers had also confirmed that there's going to be a body count in Volume 2, so a lot of the characters that we've probably come to know and love are probably going to start dropping like flies. So I don't, I don't like this. I don't like it either because it makes me very nervous because here's the thing that we all probably know at this point. Stranger Things does a really good job of introducing characters that we come to know and love and appreciate only to just rip them out right from our heartstrings and it's just heartbreaking. Like the other day when my mom and I were watching Stranger Things Season 2, we watched the part where Bob got killed and... It was sad, but it was like, oh, poor Bob. Like, we liked Bob. Even though Bob was kind of dorky and nerdy, we loved him. And Joyce loved him. And we can tell that they were in love. So it was sad to watch him die and to see Joyce watch him die. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, season, or, Stranger 4, or, <laughs> Stranger 4. Stranger 4, Stranger 4, Stranger 4. <laughs> Stranger Things does a good job of killing like, off characters. I like Stranger 4 better. Um, a lot of people are worried that Eddie Munson is going to die. I'm not worried if that's the possibility. Honestly, I've expressed it before when we first watched Volume Four. I'm not a fan of Eddie Munson. I feel like the smaller characters are going to die in this movie, in the show. Who do you consider a smaller character, like Like, a minor character? Like the newer characters that were introduced in this season. Like, for example, um, Hopper's friend in jail. That Enzo. Yeah. Yes. He's going to die. It's a possibility. I can't say for sure if it's going to happen. It's a possibility. Max is going to die. I can't speculate either. Here's my thing. I think it's safe to say that some of the newer characters that we've been introduced this season is most likely going to get killed off in Volume 2. My huge concern is that it's Argyle. I don't want it to be Argyle. Shut up. Don't put Argyle in this. You don't even like Argyle. Wait, I... Wait, wait. Hold the hell on! What did I tell you before when we were watching this part two of what's of uh, of Stranger Things four? Who is my new favorite character? I said fucking Argyle. I love Argyle. I don't want him to get killed off, but mm, it's again, it's you a don't poss- like Argyle. It's a possibility that it could happen, just like Eddie being a possibility of being a potential victim in <sighs> Volume Two. We don't know. I'm predicting that Eddie's going to die, but I don't know. I also have a feeling that Callie is going to make an appearance again in Volume 2, I think. She's going to die. If if she if her character doesn't come into the storyline to assist in Vecna's plans or whatever, I feel like she's going to be brought back as maybe a flashback scene. Because here's the thing I also learned about Volume 2. The two names of the episodes, of the last two episodes, so there's what, seven episodes right now? Episode 8 is called Papa, and Episode 9 is called The Invasion, I think. Or The Infiltration, or something like that. Okay, but... So, it's theorized that the Papa episode is possibly going to be talking about Brenner's backstory, which, if it is, that means we're going to see a lot of flashbacks of him 
putting the program together. The program that brought Eleven's mother into the MK Ultra experiment, the programs that he was working on with the kids, where how he recruited one and all the other kids and how they came to be. Like that's a possibility. There's also a possibility that it's going to explain or reveal the identity of Eleven's biological father because obviously it's not Brenner who's fa- who's the father of the kids. Mm-hmm. It's somebody else. So there's a possibility that that is going to be part of the plot in episode 8. And then obviously the final one probably is pretty much self-explanatory. They're going to come up with a plan to take down Vecna or Eleven is probably going to come up with a plan to go back to Hawkins and help her friends or there's going to be some sort of plan in place that ties it all together to get everybody out of whatever situation they're in as quickly as possible. That's my theory. What do you think? I don't know. I'm just going to wait and watch it. I'm Fine. I can tell you're tired too. So we'll just go ahead and jump into the episode. So we mentioned before in a previous episode that we've got new listeners from new countries, which we have welcomed, and you know we are glad that everybody who listens to the podcast, who's new to the podcast, is taking time to listen to our podcast. We really appreciate it. And one of those new sets of listeners hail from Italy. So I thought it would be a great time to t- actually talk about foreign films, but specifically Italian horror films, also known as giallo. So, giallo refers specifically to a particular Italian thriller horror genre that has like a mystery or detective element and often uses other themes such as slasher, crime fiction, psychological thrillers, or horror. They also do sexploitation and supernatural themes. And according to the Essential Horror Movies by Michael Mallory, we have this book. And he says, quote, Although Europe launched the horror genre in the silent era, the European horror film did not come of age until the 1960s. Actually, my favorite European horror film, I gotta say, is definitely a toss-up between either Nosferatu or the uh, the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Okay, but what countries are those originally? I think Nosferatu's from... England, and then I think Cabinet Dr. Caligari is actually German. Hang on, I'm going to take a minute to look this up. So after doing a quick Google search, I found out that both movies were released in the 1920s, mm-hmm. and they're both German films, but we're not talking about Germany right now. I know, but still. But we're going to talk about Italian. Maybe at some point we will do other countries as well, because those do, those do deserve some recognition as well. But today we're talking about Italian films. So, when we think of Italian horror or Italian films, we tend to think of, like, the top three horror directors in Italian films, which is Dario Argento, Mar- uh, That's all I think about. Dario Argento, Mario Bava, and Lucio Fulci. And I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing Lucio Fulci's name properly, so I do apologize if I am. You can go ahead and yell at me at the comments. So... I'm going to go into a bit about each director. So Dario Argento was born September 7th, 1940. He is an influential director who worked in a lot of horror genre films in the 70s and 80s. 
Some of his best known works are Deep Red, Suspiria, Dawn of the Dead, Inferno, Demons, which is one of my favorite of his movies, and Phenomena, which I think is another one of your favorites, right? Of his. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I have a little bio. Also, up. I think he also did The Taurus too. The Taurist? Yeah. What's The Taurist? The Taurist was like one of like Dario's kind of like signature gory films that was released in 1980. Okay. Well, around there, yeah. But anyway, go so, on. So, Dario was born in Rome, Italy. He was the first-born son of famed Italian producer Salvatore Argento and Brazilian fashion model Aldo Luxaro. I believe is how you pronounce her last name. Something like that, I don't know. Argento recalls getting his ideas for filmmaking from his close-knit family from Italian folk tales told by his parents and other family members, including an aunt who told him frightening bedtime stories. Argento based most of his thriller movies on childhood trauma, yet his own, according to him, was a normal one. Along with tales spun by his aunt, Argento was impressed by stories from the Grimm's brothers, Hans Christian Andersen and Edgar Allan Poe. He started his career writing for various film journal magazines while still in his teens attending a Catholic high school. He found work as a screenwriter and wrote several screenplays for a number of films, but the most important were his Western collaborations, which included Cemetery Without Crosses, which was released in 1969, and the Sergio Leone masterpiece, Once Upon a Time in the West, which was released in 1968. But yeah, he, he... directed a lot of Italian horror films and I believe Dawn of the Dead was wasn't that originally like a George A. Romero yes, it was. piece that he worked on with? Yes, it's a George A. Romero film. Okay. But I just think that's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. So what do you have to say about Dario Argento? Well, he's practically the only Italian director I've ever watched his films. Mm-hmm. Everyone else I don't know, so... I really wouldn't know the other opinions of the other directors, but Dario Argento I know very well because some of my favorite films, including Suspiria, of course, Mm -hmm. and just his gift for not only filmmaking, but the cinematography, the, the coloring, the storytelling, just everything about his films were just very magical, it feels like. From the music to the lighting to the stage, everything, everything you could think of. And even some of the gory, bloody scenes that he did, like the kill scenes, they seem like art pieces. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Dario was pretty good at, was this very much like artistic type of like uh, experimentation. Especially when it mixes with horror, which is incredibly scary, but still beautiful. Yeah. Along with Dawn of the Dead, he also worked on another movie in 1990 called Two Evil Eyes with George A. Romero. I've never seen that one, no. Neither have I. But knowing, like, we've talked about Suspiria before on this podcast when we did our remake debate of the movie, and the original had a lot of vibrant colors, usage of uh, symbolism, and it was just a really good, like, beautifully horrific like movie is the best way I can describe it because it like I said uses a lot of vibrant images one of my favorite movies that I mentioned before is Demons that was released in 1985 that was 86 I have down 85 that's what my research told me so I'm going to go with 1985 alright fine so I did watch it at one point because I was like I wanted to expand my horizons a little bit and watch other like 
types of foreign films. And Demons is actually one that was mentioned in the In Search of Darkness documentary on Shudder. Mm-hmm. So we found it on one of our streaming services, which I can't remember. Which Shudder. Shudder. And... <laughs> How do you forget that? It's not on Shudder anymore. Phenomena is on Shudder right now, which is interesting. But the point is, is that I watched Demons and I thought it was a very horrific, like, possession movie. And for those of you who don't know what Demons is about, it's essentially about these, like, it's a theater full of people who, at one point in time in the day, had received these, like, anonymous invitations to go to a private movie screening. Not really knowing much about the movie or the people who made the movie, it also kind of uses this, like, mask Mm -hmm. to, like, promote the movie. And you can see the people who are waiting in line, they see this mask, they put them on, and something with the masks causes them to get possessed by something. And to me, it seems more of like a virus than an entity. Because what happens is is that like one of the girls who gets possessed, she's a sex worker, and she puts on the mask and she gets a cut on her face. And at some point during watching this movie with her pimp and her friend, she gets like her cut it starts to become irritated and it it starts to like pulsate and ooze and she has to go to the bathroom and then eventually as she's in there she starts to slowly turn into almost this zombie like creature Mm -hmm. instead of like a possessed person but it's you know it's a very interesting way of showing a possession film and it's very graphic very gory very dark but I liked it because it, it, it has like this really suspenseful moment where when all hell starts to break loose and the other people in the theater starts to realize that something bad is happening and they're trying to figure out how to get out of there. And then suddenly they can't seem to find a way out. Mm-hmm. All the doors have been locked from the outside. There's no other way out. They keep finding like hidden passages that don't lead anywhere. And yet they're stuck in this building with all of these possessed demonic people either killing other people or turning other people into them. You know Mm. what I mean? Which is horrific. And then at the end, there's like this big action scene that's almost kind of cool in a way, but it also doesn't make any sense because it's, you know. I get that. Yeah. And actually, in the Shudder docuseries or documentary uh, In Search of Darkness, the girl who plays the sex worker who gets possessed... Mm. She says, because she's worked in other Italian films, and she says when she talks to American people who watch Italian films, they all say that Italian film doesn't make any sense. It's all crazy and doesn't make any sense. And she says, well, it doesn't make sense to you because your culture's view of horror is not how Italians view horror. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it's like that everywhere you go. Like when you watch Korean horror films, obviously they have a different sense of what horror means to them. It's not just, like, they don't do, like, serial killer expose biopics, or they don't do anything, like, slasher type. They do either, like, psychological thrillers or supernatural paranormal movies. That's, like, their shtick, and that's what they tend to make when it comes to horror, whereas Italian film goes a little bit more different with their paranormal and supernatural movies, Mm -hmm. which it seems to me, like, a lot of this falls under the spectrum of supernatural or cult even when we talk about our next director Mm -hmm. but yeah i think those are pretty interesting 
No. Okay, so the next director I have is Mario Bava. And when I did my research on him, I was actually quite impressed with his work. He was born on July 31st, 1914, and he died April 25th, 1980. He was an Italian filmmaker who worked variously as a director, cinematographer, special effects artist, and screenwriter, and was frequently referred to as the master of Italian horror, which is interesting. You don't really hear a lot of directors take on multiple roles like that at once when it comes to like productions of a movie. Which I find very interesting. And some of his most notable notable movies are Black Sunday, Black Sabbath, Kill Baby Kill, Blood and Black Lace, and A Bay of Blood. Have you ever heard of any of those movies? I know you said you've seen Black Sabbath. Right? I've heard of I've seen Black Sabbath. I've heard of Bloody uh, Bloody Sunday. You mean Black Sunday? Black mm-hmm. Sunday I've heard of because that was on Shutter, and mm-hmm. that one's got to deal with something with a woman. Mm-hmm. And then Black Sabbath I know because Vincent Price was in it. So yeah, other than that, yeah. So Mario's father was Eugenio Bava, and he was a cinematographer in the early days of Italian film. And Mario learned a lot about art, and he applied his knowledge while working with his father on film photography. And this led to a strong belief in the importance of visual composition in filmmaking, which I always think is really interesting. And as somebody like myself who went to school for photography and learned what they learned to not only apply into my photography, but also apply into video recording, Mm -hmm. it does show a lot. When you learn about the different styles of cinematography and the different type of shots and angles, you can start to notice those things a lot in movies. Like, I learned how to do continuous shots when when doing like a film editing class or film recording class. Yeah. And now when I watch like TV shows and movies, I can recognize when a continuous shot is being used. Like in, for instance, in Stranger Things season four, that scene where Jonathan, Will, and Mike are being attacked by those government agents. And there's that continuous shot of them trying to get out of the house with their agent, one of Owens' guys. Mm-hmm. And it's all one continuous shot. And it's an amazing shot. And I couldn't believe that when I watched it, I was like, oh man, this is so well put together. It does take a lot of time, practice, and choreography to do, to do the scene just right. Because when you do a continuous shot you have one shot to do it. You can't go back and do it all over again. You have to do it right the first time. Mm -hmm. If you have to do it a second time, that's great. But for their scene in particular, it involved a lot of, like, window shattering. Yeah, like, the right choreography had to be done in that one shot. And it looked so good. Mm -hmm. But I thought that was really interesting to learn about Mario Bava. And other than a series of short films in the 1940s, which he directed, Bava was a cinematographer until 1960 and had developed a reputation as a special effects genius and was able to use optical trickery to great success. Among the directors of, for whom Bava photographed films were, I'm going to butcher these names, but Paolo Huish? Huish? Well, yeah. <laughs> Paolo Huish? Ricardo Frida? Jacques Twerner and uh, Raoul Walsh. And while working with Frida on Lust of the Vampire, which was released in 
1957. The director left the project after an argument with the producers and the film mostly unfinished. Bava stepped in and directed the majority of the movie, finishing it on schedule. And this film, also known as The Devil's Commandment, inspired a wave of gothic Italian horror films, which is really interesting. I actually kind of want to see if that movie is still out there so I can try to watch it. All right, so we'll move on to the last one before we wrap up. So Lucio Fulci, which again, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. I apologize if I am. He was born in June 17, 1927 and died March 13, 1996. Although he worked on a wide variety of genres through a career spanning nearly five decades, including comedies and spaghetti westerns, he gained an international cult following with his giallo films, which include Zombie, The Psychic, The Black Cat, The Beyond, and City of the Living Dead. Most of these were between like 1979 and um, 1980. Okay. Wait, all of them? Just the ones that I've mentioned. I think he might have done more than these, but these were the only ones that were under like the horror category. And you did all those within a year? From 19... Well, actually 1977 to 1981. But he... I, I was about to say, I thought there was something off about that. Well, because he did other movies too. He did comedies and he did spaghetti westerns, which is interesting. Abandoning his early career as a med student... Lucio learned the film industry, or entered the film industry as a screenwriter and assistant director, working alongside Steno and Ricardo Frida, who we mentioned earlier. In 1968, Lucio made his first mystery thriller, one on top of the other. Its success was enough to gain backing for his pet project, The Conspiracy of Torture, which was released in 1969. So those are his more, like, earlier works of horror. Mm-hmm. But have you ever seen any of the other ones I mentioned? I know I've heard of The Black Cat and The Beyond. The Black Cat is a pretty odd movie, well, from I what I've like heard. Well, I The Black Cat, it might be either a remake, or it's probably just another... From what I've learned about The Black Cat, The Black Cat was originally an Edgar Allan Poe sh- short story yeah. that has been remade into a film adaptation multiple times. With, I believe, this one being the latest one. Yeah. But I hear it's pretty bizarre. Yeah, I think we saw it on the uh, In Search of Darkness. Yeah, I think there. they do, too. I think they mentioned that one, too. Yeah. It's a, pr- like I said, it's a pretty bizarre concept. Because essentially it's just a, it's, it's just a evil cat that's going around and causing death and destruction in its wake. Not in, like, a malicious intent, I don't think, but it's very odd the way these people die surrounding this black cat. Mm-hmm. But is there anything you wanted to add to any of these directors or just an Italian film in general? Well, they're all pioneers in the gelato, a giallo, a giallo, giallo you know it's funny when you were saying that word the whole time I think in my head I'm like gelato. Yeah, gelato's a dessert, not a movie. Well, type. they're the godfathers of that type of filmmaking, especially mm-hmm. in different types of horror. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's artistic or is, you know, pretty damn gory or it's just um, mystery or psychological. Yeah. You know, so. And I think I respect. So I was trying to say. Yes. I respect all three of them for what they do. Yeah. I think the one I mostly just like is Dario, so. 
I mean, Dario is the most popular one, obviously, out of the three. But the yeah. other two have a lot. They have a lot un- more under their belt, I feel like, than Dario. Because Mario Bava, like I said, he's not just a director. He's a producer. He's a special effects artist. He's a cinematographer. So he's got a wide variety of production skills under his belt. Mm-hmm. He can work in any type of movie under any type of job. You know, that's like a very multi-talented person, I would mm. say. Yeah. But I think Italian films, I think you and I should explore them a little bit more. Yeah, because I don't really watch them like that, but yeah. So that concludes our Giallo conversation and our speculations of Stranger Things Volume 2. Is there anything else you want to share before we sign off? Um, or anything really. else you want to address? Not really. I think we got everything for the most part. All right. Yeah, so did you tell everyone where they can listen to us? So you can listen to us anywhere you get your podcast. You can leave us a like, a comment. You can subscribe. It would be awesome. Uh, you can visit us on Instagram or follow us on Instagram. You can visit our website. That's still up and available. That concludes our episode for the week. All right, cool. Well, this has been a episode of the Abbey Normal Podcast. I am your host, Colin. And I'm Aaliyah. Signing off saying ciao. As always, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We are currently on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. Be sure to give us a like, subscribe, or a nice review for our podcast. It helps boost our show positively. You can also follow us on Instagram and now on TikTok.